In the mobile banking and payment space, technology, services, and security threats are changing rapidly, often on a daily basis. So what opportunities and risks does this still emerging and ever-evolving financial services platform pose for financial institutions? Tom Wills, a financial fraud and security consultant with Javelin Strategy and Research, says institutions can expect to face plenty of both, and those opportunities and risks aren't isolated to one particular market. Institutions the world over face the same challenges, a blessing in some ways, and a significant concern in others. Hi, I'm Tracy Kinn with Information Security Media Group, and I'm joined today by Tom Wills, who shares his insights and predictions for mobile banking and payment security in the years to come. Now, Tom, in 2011, mobile threats increased. We've heard about MITMO and other mobile malware attacks, but what other emerging mobile threats should we be concerned about? A couple of things that I can think of, Tracy. The first is attacks against the mobile networks themselves. Uh, the telcos take security, I would say, more seriously than the app store vendors do, but less seriously than the banking industry does. They sort of fall in between those two. And there are some security holes in the mobile networks. For example, Cell towers can be spoofed. There's a, a well-known man in the middle of an attack that's possible between the phone and the cell tower. SMS and USSD gateways, they very often have poor security, so it's often possible to harvest transaction data from them if you've had an insider at the telco who wasn't supervised well, for example. Uh, so these fall into the realms of things that, as a bank, you, you have no control over. So compensating controls like transaction limits, good authorization decisioning systems, device fingerprinting, fraud analytics, and things of that nature are going to help there. And then there's the whole aspect of mobile banking and payments, uh, the, the back office aspect, which, again, includes the possibility of insider fraud. So we don't want situations where a bank employee or a call center employee is able to get access to the wallet creation or the general ledger function of a mobile banking account at the back end and, and for example, create accounts for themselves or for accomplices that they're uh, able to actually fund fraudulently. So that's a concern. To protect against that, you would need good, I would just say good all-around information security, strong authentication, dual control, background checks, things of that nature. Nothing new or unique here, but still very important to secure the back end as well as the front end. What types of threats are some of the international markets facing that could help institutions in the U.S. prepare for? Tracy, I've worked on mobile banking and payment systems both inside and outside the U.S. on, let's see, one, two, three, four continents at this point. And I would say that so far threats against mobile banking services are pretty uniform globally. So nothing really special to report here. And that's because the technology is, is pretty uniform. You have four or five different vendors, uh, the ones that I mentioned in the presentation, and, um, you know, those, those vendors are selling into Latin America and into Asia and to the United States, too. So the attacks against those systems are, are going to be fairly uniform. I would say it's a, it's a global issue uh, how to secure mobile banking systems. Well, that's a great point, and that's a nice segue into a question that I actually wanted to ask. When we think about best practices, what would you say are the top three best practices institutions should implement for risk assessments when it comes to mobile banking or mobile payments? If you want to boil it down to three things, I would say the first one would be to, in your risk assessments, to cover the whole mobile ecosystem. For those areas where you have no control, come up with a system of compensating controls. Secondly, again, you know, with your risk assessments, repeat them often uh, because we're in an environment where technology is changing and evolving very quickly, and so is the threat environment. In a standard enterprise environment where it might be recommended for you to, to do your assessments once every year, I would say in, in, in a mobile banking to payment ecosystem, 
every six months or even every quarter wouldn't be too much. Thirdly, be sure to treat the mobile device itself as untrusted. The consumer device is untrusted. And again, come up with some appropriate compensating controls for that. Those would be the top three, I think. Now, Tom, are there certain mobile devices, such as Android, that institutions might want to avoid? And can we limit the types of devices that we allow some customers or members to use for mobile banking? I don't really think so. I, I don't think that um, limiting devices or operating systems is a very good strategy, especially um, given that Android has the biggest market share, because Android is probably the most vulnerable system that's out there. So if you cut out Android and Android devices, you're essentially cutting out your whole market. Um, so that's probably not not the best approach. And uh, you know, in the mobile world, it's always been the case and always been the challenge that you have to cater for multiple multiple devices and multiple operating systems. So the um, the platforms that have been set up are are, are able to do that. And again, um, I'm going to go back to that same old uh, mantra of using compensating controls, your transaction limits, your authorization, uh, your, your device fingerprinting, analyze transactions and look for risk there uh, on high-risk transactions, keep them low. Uh, but do that as opposed to, to uh, sort of a broad brush uh, approach of eliminating a given um, operating system or device. You mentioned Android, and I wanted to ask a little bit mm -hmm. about Android concerns. Uh, are there worries that we should share with consumers about personal data being saved in cloud-based servers, for instance? And if those servers are hacked or some type of personal information is breached, could the bank be mm -hmm. held responsible? Well, you know, your Android is unique in that it's an open source platform. So from a security standpoint, it's designed to be self-policing, uh, which is probably good if you're a game developer. But if you're if you're developing and you're deploying financial applications like banking and payments, it's not so adequate for that. So when an Android application gets downloaded and it gets activated, there's a number of permissions that have to be set up by the user uh, with respect to what data can be exposed from the application. So given that most device owners, most consumers aren't terribly savvy about security and privacy, uh, it's easy for them to skip over the right decisions or even to be fooled into making the wrong decisions about their data. That that sort of leaves things open for uh, for phishing and social engineering types of scenarios. As far as liability goes, in the case of a breach, I'm not a lawyer, but I wouldn't be at all surprised to see class action suits down the road coming from consumers who feel that they've had their privacy violated in some way when their PIA was harvested off their mobile device. And that's simply because mobile devices enable really a new kind of eavesdropping capability that never existed before. So we're really in new territory here. As usual, the technology innovation is way far ahead of regulation and even development of best practices. So I, I think we're going to see a lot of activity, probably going to see a few uh, incidents, a few breaches, things going wrong, probably some uh, legal activity, and then eventually some movement towards regulation in that area. Is there one mobile platform that's more concerning than another where consumer privacy issues are concerned, especially as we think about more data being stored in the cloud? Absolutely. The answer is Android. Again, and you know we're in this this dilemma because Android is the biggest operating system. They keep getting bigger with respect to market share, and you know again it's because Android features this system of permissions that the user gives when the application gets installed for for various things that the application is allowed to do. You know, and because of the way pe people behave, um, I believe that is going to bring some 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 privacy issues out there. You know, Android. Uh, Google, I should say, who developed Android, made a conscious choice to, to build their platform that way. 
and, and not to have heavy security built into it, even though you know it's been their position that 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 they were adequately secure. But really, when Google designed Android, I don't think that they designed it with with mobile banking in mind. I think they designed it for a lot of other things in mind. So, um, you know that 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 is a concern and will continue to be one. Now, security, as you've noted, has not been a big concern for most of the developers of some of these mobile applications. So what can institutions do to ensure that the applications that customers and members are downloading to use for mobile banking and payments have security baked in? I mean, is there any way that institutions can get more control there? Absolutely, we can. Um, What it involves is going to our app developers, negotiating contracts with them that include more stringent security requirements, like following a security development lifecycle, a secure development lifecycle. I mean, complying with the OWASP guidelines, OWASP, doing extensive security testing and code reviews prior to release, things like that. In my experience, most developers are going to enthusiastically resist this. Why? Because it pushes up their costs. Uh, But banks are the customers here. And so as an industry, we need to put ourselves in the driver's seat uh, with respect to security. It might be that we need to pay more in the end for these more secure apps, but think about the cost of more secure software against the cost of one-third of your potential customers not doing mobile banking at all because they're concerned about security. So it seems like a prudent investment to me. Tom, how concerned should the industry be about the outsourcing model for app development and the fact that Mm -hmm. many of these mobile app developers and programs might be intentionally putting out apps that are vulnerable or contain some type of malicious code? Yes, we we should be very concerned about this. It's an area that hasn't gotten nearly enough attention in the industry, uh, and it's created something of a vacuum for the hackers to rush into the way they always do. When 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 hackers find a weak point in the in in the security chain, they're always going to jump in and exploit that. So again, the first tech example that I gave in the presentation is proof that malicious app developers are out there, and they can and will exploit weaknesses in the app store. And even if you have um, a, a big branded offshore uh, development house um, that's that's totally legitimate. It's a it's it's a good company. You still might have a rogue employee that exists in in that in in that uh, organization who puts a trap door or a back door or something like a logic bomb uh, into the code and leaves the company and then goes back uh, later on and, and accesses it. So uh, the way to control for that is to implement a code signing process the, the way I've discussed. Now, you've mentioned code signing a couple of times, but can you explain a bit Mm -hmm. more about code signing and steps that institutions can take to protect customers from fake apps? Uh, Sure, sure. The code signing is the process of digitally signing a software application, and from a security point of view, it does two valuable things. One is to confirm who the developer of the software is, and the other is to guarantee that the software hasn't been altered. So in, in an app store environment, if you code sign your mobile banking app, and you make it clear that you've done that, and then the digital signature gets checked as part of the software distribution process, either by the App Store, as, I'm, as, as I continually recommend, or when it gets downloaded, then it makes it harder for that fake banking app to be posted on the App Store in the first place. So I should say here that just like any other security controls, code signing isn't perfect, and it can be defeated with enough technical expertise and determination. So you can't rely on code signing by itself. You need to have the full constellation of security controls working together. Um, For example, users can be tricked through social engineering into running unsigned code or even into running code that refuses to validate. 
and there are private keys involved, and so those private keys have to remain secret. If they're compromised, then the system isn't secure any longer. So it's, it's one control that should be used among many. It's also important to understand that code signing doesn't protect the end user from any malicious activity or unintentional software bugs by the software author, like I was describing before. It just ensures that the software hasn't been modified by anyone other than the legitimate author. What are the third-party risks that banks should consider, especially as more non-financial players offer mobile payments or services that touch mobile banking? You have to be aware of the risks that are introduced into your own service by other players in the ecosystem and by the networks that link these players together, like, like the, the mobile, the GSM, or the cellular network, for example. And once again, unless you have a contractual relationship with the company involved, there's not a lot you can do to influence their security practices. And because you're a bank and they're not, uh, almost it's a given that they're going to have less security than you do. So all you can do in that case is to consider those entities and those networks as untrusted and once again, use compensating controls, do what you can to avoid sending sensitive data uh, across sensitive networks, either by encrypting, by caching, by tokenizing your, your sensitive data, or, or some of the other things that I mentioned earlier, the device fingerprinting, the analytics, uh, the transaction limits, and so forth. Tom, I want to thank you again for your time today and for your insights. It was my pleasure, Tracy.